Right. Good morning, Campbell Road. So good to see everyone this morning. Go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to the middle of your Bibles to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is where we will be this morning, and specifically we'll be looking at Psalm 2. Let's go ahead and turn over to Psalm 2. Now while you're turning there, I have to get something out of the way right at the beginning. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling really good this morning. I'm, I'm really happy. I woke up technically not on the right side of the bed, but on the correct um, and uh, I'm not mad at the dog or my six-month-old daughter. I'm doing really good. And if you talk to me after the sermon, I will have a smile on my face and I'll be in a great mood. However, Psalm 2 is not in that great of a mood. Psalm 2 is kind of angry. Psalm 2 has got a lot of God's wrath and God's fury and God's terror. So if it sounds like I'm angry this morning, I'm really not. Uh, I just haven't figured out how to preach Psalm 2 without kind of sounding angry, I think. So we'll see how that goes, but you have to forgive me. Psalm 2. Now, before we jump into the psalm, what I want to do this morning is first uh, quickly go over uh, the psalm itself, kind of quickly break that down, and then essentially the sermon will be broken into three parts. We're going to look how Psalm 2 had an original context. It meant something during the time it was written, and then we're going to look at how it was fulfilled in Jesus, and then finally we'll look at how we have application for Psalm 2 today. Psalm 2. There's a story I've heard about a captain uh, that was on a ship at night. Uh, and all of a sudden, he saw a light in front of him, uh, an anonymous light, presumably another ship on the water. And so he sent a message. He told one of his men to send, send a message to this anonymous light. And he said, divert your path 10 degrees north. And soon there was a message that came back to the captain. And it said, divert your path. 10 degrees south. And that kind of made the captain angry. And so he sent another message to this anonymous light. And he said, divert your path 10 degrees north. I am a captain. Soon he got another message back and it said, divert your path 10 degrees south. I am a seaman third class. Finally, the captain was just fed up with it. And so he sent a final message and he said, divert your path 10 degrees north. I am a battleship. Soon a reply came back. Divert your course 10 degrees south. I am a lighthouse. It's kind of hard for us to submit sometimes, isn't it? In this world where we uh, cherish self-efficiency and freedom and independence, sometimes submission sounds like surrender. What we're going to find in Psalm 2 is that we are called to submission and that there are consequences if we do not submit to the one in Psalm 2 that is called God's Son. And if we don't, in fact, Kiss the son of Psalm 2. So, to begin, let's, let's quickly first look at the Psalms in general before we jump into Psalm 2, because that will be important for us to begin this morning. When we read the Psalms, uh, it wasn't like David was the only author in that he sat down one day and he started with Psalm 1 and then he finished with Psalm 150 and closed the book. Um, the Psalms are actually written over about a thousand year span. Uh, normally, Psalm 90 is attributed to Moses, and we consider that the very first psalm. Uh, and then Psalm 126 was written at, at the end, and presumably after the exile. So we have about a thousand-year span in the psalms. And so, when we come to Psalm 1 and we come to Psalm 2, those weren't the first two psalms written. They were put there for a specific reason. And in fact, I believe what we find in Psalm 1 and 2 is an introduction to the psalms. Uh, there's a few reasons to think that. For one, the Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 don't have any what we would call superscript above them. They don't say a Psalm of David or to the choir master. 
Um, they're, they're kind of orphan psalms, you might say. So they have that going for them. That's unique. Uh, and also, there's this thing, almost like bookends, that kind of tell us to connect Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. You might look in your Bible. Psalm 1 at the beginning, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. At the final verse of Psalm 2, verse 12, it says, Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And so we have these brackets of being blessed, telling us to look at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together, in a sense. And also in Psalm 1, you have two different paths. The path of the blessed or the path of the wicked. There's no third option. Two paths. And we find the very same thing in Psalm 2. There are two choices about who is going to be our king and who we are going to submit to. And so we walk into the Psalms and we find this introduction between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and them working together. And when we get to Psalm 2, like the story of that captain, sometimes it's hard for us to yield. We are reluctant to yield and submit to the Son. Let's go and read Psalm 2 together. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What you'll find at the very beginning on the surface of Psalm 2 is that it is neatly organized. It's actually broken up into four different sections, and your Bible might kind of break that up for you in paragraphs. Uh, four sections of three verses apiece. And something that's unique about Psalm 2 is that in each of those sections, we have someone different speaking. So in the very first section, verses 1 through 3, it's the nations that are speaking, and they are speaking against the Lord's anointed, against the Son. In the second section, we have God responding to those nations. In the third section, we have the Son himself telling about the decree that God has told him. And then in the final section, we have God again responding to the nations. And in that first section, the psalmist begins with a question. Why? Why are the nations raging? Why are they plotting in vain? Another interesting connection with Psalm 1 is that that word that's translated plot is the same word in Psalm 1 verse 2 for meditate. The idea is this, that we can either meditate on God's law and how to serve it, or we can meditate, plot against his law. And we will either be blessed or we will perish. And so it begins with, why do the nations rage? And the answer in the first section is because they feel oppressed. They feel like God ruling over them is bondage and oppression, and they want to break free of that. And in section two, God responds to that. He responds to these nations. Again, Psalm 1 is blown up to the world scene. It's no longer the individual that's going down the path of the wicked. Now it's the entire world. It's all the nations that normally don't get along, but they've come together against the common enemy. The nations are raging. And so what will God do? Is, is he nervous? Is he chewing his fingernails 
up on the throne in heaven? No, God laughs. It's not laughing of hilarity, it's laughing of mockery. God is not scared of this rebellion. He's not scared of the nations. And so his response is to set his son on the throne to establish his king. And then in the third section, we get the son himself speaking about the decree that God has given to him and how we find out that he is a son. Not only is he a son, he is a begotten son. And the picture is this, that there is an intimate relationship between the son and the father, that there's a connection between the throne in heaven and the throne on earth. And the son has promised something. He's promised all of the nations that are raging. And we find that when he's on his throne, he is wielding an iron rod that the nations are going to be like a potter's vessel. Um, I'm not saying it's a good idea, but if you're an 8- to 10-year-old boy uh, and you own a baseball bat and your mother has some old clay planting pots that you don't think she's going to use anymore, I'm not saying it's a good idea, but you're kind of obligated to throw one of them up and take a swing at some point. And if you do that, I'm not saying I've ever done that, if you do that, which one of those is going to break? The bat or the clay pot? How about if you did it a thousand times? Every single time, the iron rod is going to win, and that's the picture of Psalm 2. It doesn't matter how many nations rage against God's anointed. He is going to win. And then in the final section, God again speaks to the nations, and he tells them to be wise, and he gives them a command. These kings that are used to giving commands are now being commanded to serve the Son and to kiss the son. Your version might say to pay homage. It's the same idea. It's not a kiss of affection. It's a kiss of submission. The idea is that we are bowing down and kissing the feet or kissing the hand or the ring of the king in submission. And at the very end of Psalm 2, it ends with a blessing. For those that decide to take refuge in the son, they will be protected. So what does all that mean? Well, first, let's look at what that meant during the time it was written, during the original context. Uh, we don't have to guess, actually, about who wrote Psalm 2, because in Acts 4, we're told this is the Psalm of David. David is the author. Uh, and also, we have a good indication of why the Psalm was written or what it was used for, because we call this a royal Psalm. It speaks about the kings of Israel. But specifically in Psalm 2, it's about setting up the king of Israel. And so likely, Psalm 2 would have been used, uh, sung during a coronation of the new king, when a new king was established. And so it's a coronation psalm written by David, but it's also important for us to know where David's coming from. Because realize when he wrote this, he was the anointed one. He was this king. How could David write these grandiose things about the kings of Israel? It's because of the Davidic covenant that was made with David. We find that in 2 Samuel 7, where God, through Nathan, tells David that his throne, his kingdom, is going to be established forever. That he's going to make him a house and that his enemies are not going to prevail over him, but he's going to have rest from his enemies. And so David could write Psalm 2 with confidence because of 2 Samuel 7. And in fact, we find in David's life that he, in a sense, was fulfilling Psalm 2 because David, when he took the throne, had victory after victory after victory. And actually, right after the covenant made with David, we find a little story that's, that's also almost a microcosm of Psalm 2 because we had a story about a Gentile king had a deezer of Zobah who rebels against David, and he is defeated and perishes. And right after that, we read about the king Toy of Hamath, and he decides to pay homage or kiss the son. 
and he is blessed by David. And so we see Psalm 2 working itself out in the life of David. However, we know that Psalm 2 is not fulfilled in David. Because even at the end of David's life, the kingdom was not what is prophesied of in Psalm 2. And so after that, as the kings began to degrade and the nation was going downward and downward, we find that the fulfillment of Psalm 2 was not in the idea of the actual kings, but it became a psalm in hope of the ideal king. This is what the kings should have been, even though the kings weren't this throughout Israel's history. And then finally, after they go into exile, this psalm too became a hope for the Messiah, for the king that was supposed to be the king of Psalm 2, the Messiah that would rule on the throne, the Messiah that would conquer the whole world, all of the nations that would give refuge and give blessing. Psalm 2 was a hope for the Messiah. We read Psalm 89. That's another royal psalm, and it's actually the flip of Psalm 2. Because it tells us about how the enemies against David, whether that's himself or his lineage, are winning. They're defeating the king. And essentially Psalm 89 is asking, what about Psalm 2? What about this promise in Psalm 2? Where is the Messiah? And so they were looking forward to the Messiah to come. And that's why we can turn to our New Testament and find that Psalm 2 had its fulfillment ultimately in Jesus. Now that seems pretty obvious to us. If you just read Psalm 2, you don't need anybody to tell you that Psalm 2 is about Jesus. You read about a son, and he's begotten, and he's the king. We know that's talking about Jesus. However, there are millions of people on this earth today that don't recognize Psalm 2 is about Jesus. There are millions of practicing Jews, Orthodox Jews, that don't believe Psalm 2 is talking about Jesus. Maybe you've become a little bit more aware of this recently because we normally don't interact uh, with Orthodox Jews on a daily account, if you're like me. Uh, but because of the war going across the world, we were reminded of the physical nation. However, they are suffering in much greater ways if they are, in fact, practicing Judaism because they're looking for a Messiah. It's already come. He's already come. Jesus has fulfilled Psalm 2. Jesus is on his throne. Jesus is reigning right now, and we need to appreciate that truth. Psalm 2 was fulfilled in Jesus. And so we can look, we're not going to look at every reference to Psalm 2 in the New Testament, but we're going to take a quick survey of how Jesus, in fact, fulfilled Psalm 2. Uh, when you turn into the Gospels, you'll find references to Jesus as God's Son. When Jesus in Matthew 3 is baptized, we find that the Father speaks and he says, This is my beloved Son. That's an allusion to Psalm 2. He is naming his Son. And then later on in Matthew 17, at the Transfiguration, Again, the Father speaks to the Son, and he says, This is my beloved Son. Jesus is the Son of Psalm 2. And then we also have some direct quotes of Psalm 2 in the New Testament. When you turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, you'll find a direct quote of Psalm 2, verse 7. In fact, the writer uses it twice. Uh, in Hebrews 1, verse 5, the writer is making an argument that Jesus is a better messenger than angels. And he makes his case by saying, Of no angel has anyone ever said... You are my son and my begotten. That is only attributed to Jesus. Makes the same argument in chapter 5, verse 5, about how Jesus is a better high priest. Of how no high priest has it ever been said, you are my son and you are my begotten son. And so Jesus is the begotten son of Psalm 2. And then we get some more direct quotes from the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, it's all about Jesus being the son because of his resurrection. We find Paul in Acts 13 
speaking at a synagogue, and he's giving a message about how Jesus is the Messiah. And he makes his case by saying he's the Messiah because he is risen, because he was resurrected, and then he quotes Psalm 2. He is the begotten Son. And so Paul, in his mind, Jesus was essentially made the Son, made his begotten at the resurrection. And we actually find Peter doing the very same thing in Acts 4. In Acts 4, Peter and John had went to the Sanhedrin, uh, and the Sanhedrin essentially told them, quit talking about Jesus. Just stop it, please. Uh, but of course they don't. Uh, and so Peter comes back to the rest of the disciples and tells them what has been going on. And we pick up in verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. And so Peter and the rest of the disciples attribute Psalm 2 to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And who were the nations that were raging? It was not only the Gentiles. It was not only Pilate. It was not only Herod. It was the nation of Israel itself. They raged against God's Son. They raged against the anointed. They raged against their own Messiah. Just, just a quick note, when we read anointed in our Old Testaments, uh, from that word we get the word Messiah. And then in the Greek, we get the word, the word Christos. So anointed and Messiah and Christ all reference the same thing. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah is who they crucified. And they thought they won. They thought they could kill Jesus. They thought that they could bury him and they thought that they could forget about Jesus. But while Jesus was in the tomb, the nations might have been rejoicing. But God was laughing. And on the third day, God raised Jesus to make him the Christ. And he ascended to the throne. And right now, right now, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. That's your reality. That's your world. Praise God that Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of God right now. Jesus was the fulfillment of Psalm 2. And so, Psalm 2 had something to do during David's time and the kings of Israel of how the Gentile nations, the Gentile kings, were supposed to submit and kiss the sun. And it has something to do with the first century Christians of how the nations should have submitted to King Jesus and kissed the sun. But what does Psalm 2 have to do for us today? Well, the first truth that I think is just painfully obvious. In fact, let, 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 me, let me hold on just for a second while we're here. I, I want to make this point. Um, it's Jesus is the king of Psalm 2. But we need to appreciate what that means, that Jesus is the king of Psalm 2. Do you remember what kind of king we read about in Psalm 2? Uh, it's, it's not a king that is all love and all mercy. It is a king of wrath. It is a king that is set up on his throne to bring God's wrath. I mean, can you imagine? Think about it for a second. If, if you were walking down the hallway during VBS uh, and you had some posters, you know, you got Noah and he's got the animals around him and it's kind of nice and cuddly. And then, I don't know, you got some of the disciples and they're fishing on the boat. And then you come, you come to the poster of Jesus 
Uh, and, and he's not in a, in a you know an old robe, and he's not handing out bread or helping the sick. No, he's on his throne, and he's got an iron rod in his hand, and he's swinging it, and he's breaking the nations into pieces. What would what we, we say? We need to take that down. Wait a second. That's not that's not my Jesus. That's the Jesus of Psalm 2. We don't think about this side of Jesus all that often. But Jesus is the king that brings wrath. In Psalm 2, he is wielding an iron rod. And it doesn't say that his anger is kindled after a while. It says his anger is quickly kindled. Jesus is the king that brings wrath. But we also need to realize the reason why he's bringing wrath in Psalm 2. Because we also are told that those that submit to the Son take refuge in Him. Jesus is wielding an iron rod, but it's because He wants to protect His people. It's because Jesus loves His people, and that's why He's going to judge the nations. Jesus is not looking for a fight, but Jesus is willing to fight for His people. And we get to decide which side of that battle we are going to be on. Jesus is a King of wrath. And so, let's go into what that means for us today. Uh... Number one, the truth that we just can't escape, is that plots against God are vain. Isn't it funny when you read Psalm 2, you kind of get this idea that the world thinks, you know, I maybe don't stand a chance against God on my own, but, but what if there was like ten of us? Or, or what if there was a hundred of us? Or, or a million? Maybe if we all banded together and conspired together, maybe then we would have a better chance against the Almighty God. I mean, think about what, what if just the whole world, what if the entire world decided to come against God? What would God do then? I don't know, maybe send a flood? I mean, do, do you see how futile it is to band against the Almighty God? And yet this has happened throughout history. Think back to the Tower of Babel. The people were going against God's commandment and decree to spread and multiply over the world. They said, no, let's conspire and band together and let's build a city and a tower for protection, and to make a name for ourselves. And they were conspiring against, the God, against God's command. And, and what do we find God doing? Um, it says in the text that he comes down. Do you get the idea? God, God has to like bend over and kind of wipe the... It, oh yeah, that is a tower down there. Yeah, this tower that they were so excited about, that man thought they, they beat God with. God says, that this, this is it. And what does he do to... to you know, thwart this grandiose plan, he essentially snaps his fingers and confuses their language. Just like that, it's over. The whole plan, done. The plots against God are vain. No army has any power against God. Sennacherib had an army of 185,000 warriors. God wiped them out in the night. God made the most powerful man on the earth into a beast of the field in King Nebuchadnezzar. The plots against God are vain. And here's the thing that's even more intriguing. Not only do people plot against God in vain, but sometimes they think they won. I mean, they actually think they won. I mean, even at the Tower of Babel, they thought we did it. I know God said to do this, but we figured it out. We build this city and we build this tower. We be God. Have you ever heard of Diocletian? Diocletian was a Roman emperor. Uh, he ruled at the end of the 3rd century, beginning of the 4th century. And Diocletian hated Christians, and he persecuted them violently. Not only that, Diocletian actually thought that he beat Christianity. Like, like he thought he actually won, like wiped it off the face of the planet. We have an inscription that comes from the reign of Diocletian that says this, The name of the Christians 
being extinguished. We have another, we have a monument made to Diocletian, which reads this way. Diocletian, for having extended the Roman Empire in the east and the west, and having extinguished the name of the Christians who brought the Republic to ruin. Diocletian actually boasted that he beat Christianity. He, he thought he wiped it off the face of the planet. I have a question for you. Uh, how many of you knew who Diocletian was before I mentioned him this morning? Okay, that's good. Thank you for the hand. Yeah, uh, most of us probably didn't, right? Another question, uh, where is he now? He's dead and gone. He's a footnote in history. And yet, Jesus Christ's name reigns over the whole earth, the whole world. The plots against God are vain. And the fact is, this isn't just a truth of the nations of old. This is the truth still today. Do you read Psalm 2 at the beginning there and think about our world, think about our nations? Why do the nations rage? Why does our nation rage? It's because our world, our nation, feels that the commandments of God are oppressive, that they're a burden, that they're something they need to break free from. They want to do things their way. They want to do things on their terms. They want to do what they want to do. They want to name their own gender. They want to abort their own babies. They want to do with their body what they want to do. They want to put in their body what they want to put in it, and they want to say with their own mouth what they want to say. They want to break the bonds of God, and they plot against God. That's the world that we live in. And we can stick our head in the sand and ignore that. But things from the beginning of time have continued to escalate. People continue to plot against God. The things that used to be hidden in the closet in shame now strut the street with pride. Last week, Ricky was talking about how he's, he's concerned about his, his grandchildren Growing up in that kind of world, and I get it. I have a six-month-old. I'm still wrapping my head around how to uh, teach her and protect her and get her ready for that kind of world that she's going to have to live in. But that's when we need to remember that the plots against God are in vain. They're in vain. This world has not redefined anything. God defines things. This world has not changed anything. God is unchanging. This world is not one. God wins every single time. His king rules with a rod of iron, and he will not lose. So the plots against God are in vain. God is laughing. Are you? It's not the idea that we point fingers and we make fun, but we don't fear. We're not scared of wars. We're not scared of politics. We're not scared of sin running rampant in this world. Why? Because there is a king sitting on his throne, Jesus the Christ. The plots against God are vain. Another truth that is closely connected with that is that we truly find freedom, true freedom, in submission. But we found from the beginning of time that men think just the opposite of this, right? We, we go back to the garden with Adam and Eve. And what do they do? They take of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And the picture is not just that they wanted to know good and evil. They wanted to decide what good and evil was going to be. They thought God was holding something back from them that God was holding out on them, that there was a blessing that they could have that God wasn't giving them. And so they took matters into their own hands. They plotted and they raged against God. But where did that put them? That was the very thing that took their freedom and put them under bondage, put them under a curse. True freedom is found in submission. We have 
our song for the year, our theme, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And in the third verse, it says, Let thy goodness, like a fetter, like a shackle, like a handcuff, bind my wandering heart to thee. When we know how good God is, we don't seek to break his bond. We seek to strengthen it because true freedom comes in submission and being bound to God. The word blessed here at the end of Psalm 2, it has two connotations. Uh, the first is actually happiness, and the other is fortune. God is promising us, if we take refuge in the Son, happiness and fortune. Now, of course, we don't always realize that on earth, but, but this is the picture. God has made that promise. Do we trust it? Is that not the very reason why people want to break the bonds of God? I know he said this, but this will make me happy. I know God has said this, but this will bring me more fortune. If I can just burst these bonds that God has put upon me, then I will be blessed. Do we trust God's promise of Psalm 2? That he has promised to bless us. We are made to trust things. We really are. Uh, you, you sat down on the pews this morning, and you're not worried about the pew just you know, collapsing. Uh, there's like thousands of pounds of material hanging above your head right now. Sorry to make that you know, aware, uh, but, but you're not worried about the ceiling crashing in on you this morning. Why? Because you sat in this building hundreds of times and it never has. It's very consistent. And so you trust it. And our God is consistent. And so when he makes a promise to us, to bless us through his son, we trust his promise. Do you trust that? Do you trust that God is promised to bless you? Bless you in a way that's greater than any wealth that this world can offer. Bless you in a way that is greater than any pride or acquisition that the world can offer. Greater than any lust that the world can offer. Do you trust the promise of Psalm 2 and God's blessing? Because true freedom is found in submission to the Son. The final point we need to make this morning is just the question. Have you kissed the Son? Have you submitted to King Jesus? We've talked a lot about the world and a lot about the nations this morning. And it's sometimes really easy to point the finger at all those that aren't submitting to Jesus, that are raging against his son. But the real question for us this morning is not why are the nations raging, but are we raging? Have we kissed the son in submission? Have we bowed down to the king? Paul wrote to the church at Rome, the church of Philippi, that there will be a judgment day and that every knee will bow. And we get to decide to either bow willingly in submission and be blessed or to be forced to bow and be judged. Have you kissed the sun? Someone is going to be king over your life. Someone will be. And we get to decide. And Psalm 2 gives us two options. Two options for who that king is going to be. Either it's going to be Jesus or it's going to be someone else. And the fact is that really our problem today is not the nations. It's not some other king or some other ruler in a foreign nation or in this, this nation. The problem for us is that we made ourselves the king. Have we become the king of our own life? And there's a real danger in that because you don't have to conquer a foreign country to become the king of your own life. Uh, you don't even have to conquer a Facebook post. Uh, you, you can sit in the corner and, and be quiet and not have anybody submitting to you. No one can know. No one at work no one at church, no one at home, but you know, you know in your heart, if you have not submitted to King Jesus, if you have not kissed the Son, there are only two options in Psalm 2. 
There's no third option. There's no option of, you know, I don't really feel like I'm rebelling against Jesus. I mean, I'm just kind of I'm just kind of going through life. I'm just kind of cruising. Things are chill. I don't really feel like I'm rebelling. Um, you know, I, I, I haven't killed anybody, but I'm not really on fire for Jesus. I mean, you know, I, I don't feel the need to talk about Jesus with anybody, but, but I also don't talk about, you know, filth and wickedness all day. I mean, I'm just, I'm not really rebelling, but I'm not really fully committed. That option doesn't exist. We made it up. We made that up. Psalm 2 gives us two options. Either Jesus is your king or he's not. And he wields an iron rod. And he's made a decree. The king has made a decree. He's made a decree in the home about how parents are a unit, a man and a woman, and about how children are supposed to honor their father and their mother, about how wives are supposed to be submissive to husbands, and how husbands are supposed to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Have you submitted to that? Have you kissed the son? Or do we think, you know, this whole thing about honoring parents and listening to parents and doing what my parents say, you know, it just kind of feels a little bit restrictive and I don't really like that very much. Uh, so I'm not really going to submit to that. Maybe I don't even have the audacity to say it to their face. I'm not going to rage out loud. But in my heart, oh, if they just knew, if I could just give them a piece of my mind, I won't. But in my heart and in my mind, behind the closed door of my room, I'm going to rage. We submitted. Or if you're white, Having to submit to an imperfect husband, does that feel like oppression? I, I mean, after all, I mean, I could really do this job better than he could. I mean, I could be the head of this household. In fact, I think I just will be. I'm going to be the head of this household today because I think I could do a better job. I'm just going to take this into my own hands. Have we submitted to the son? Or husbands, having to love an imperfect wife, does that feel like bondage? No, why doesn't she act like someone else's wife? Or, or why doesn't she do things better? Why isn't she more loving? The question is not for her. The question is for you. Have you kissed the son? Have you submitted to King Jesus? He's given a decree in the church as well. He's given a decree about how we are supposed to worship in spirit and in truth. About how we are supposed to follow the example of the apostles that they lay down of how we are supposed to search the scriptures to find the truth, not our own hearts. And so when we get the idea that, you know, I know that I'm supposed to love people and have compassion and be passionate for Jesus and this justice and mercy stuff and help my neighbor, I know that, but as long as I kind of check these boxes and show up in the right place at the right time, I think I'm going to be okay. Or we, we get on the other end of things and we think, you know what, it doesn't really matter what I do all that much as long as my heart's in the right place. As long as I kind of feel like I'm doing Jesus things. And really, that, that, all that stuff that the apostles did in the first century, does that really matter anymore? Before we go down any of those roads, we need to take a good, long, hard look at Psalm 2. And adjust our glasses and clearly see a throne of a king wielding an iron rod that is ready to bring the wrath of God. We rejoice in Jesus. Psalm 2 tells us to rejoice but we rejoice in trembling. We need to have a healthy respect, a healthy fear for King Jesus. Have you kissed the Son? Have you submitted? Look at your life this morning. Is there something that the King has decreed in your life? Something that He has asked of you that you know that you're resisting?
that you know that you have been raging against? Have you kissed the Son? Have you submitted King Jesus? Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.